Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is the director of Big Brother Watch, Silky Carla. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. Listen, uh, for anyone who does not know who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Who are you? How are you where you are? What has been the journey through life that leads you here sitting talking to us? Uh, I'm the director of Big Brother Watch. We're a UK privacy and civil liberties organisation. I've been at Big Brother Watch for a few years. Previously, I worked at Liberty and started the Tech and Human Rights Programme there, focusing mainly on surveillance. And that was when the Investigatory Powers Act was going through Parliament's big mass surveillance law, uh, the Snoopers Charter. Um, And kind of that's that is my my journey into human rights campaigning. I mean, I've, I've you don't I like being always... watched, I take it. <laughs> <laughs> Except right now. Um, I was always a, a civil liberties um, campaigner, and obviously growing up in the post-9-11 years, I mean, mm. there were really live debates about civil liberties. Um, and then in 2013, when Snowden blew the whistle, I felt really compelled to, uh, to, to make that part of my kind of life mission, maybe sounds too grandiose, but my, my focus of work. I mean, it's so... To, to me, it's very, very important, but like a watershed moment. Um, and I started working for his legal defence fund, which then became uh, an NGO that now looks after whistleblowers and uh, truth tellers, including Snowden and uh, Chelsea Manning and, and many others, uh, called the C- Courage Foundation. So I've been working a lot around surveillance, technology and human rights um, as a civil liberties human rights advocate. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show because, as you know, Silky, it's a great time for uh, civil liberties in this country. We haven't lost any of them over COVID. No, yeah, everything's <laughs> great. <laughs> no work to do. Yeah. yeah. So could, could you just give an example of all the things that have happened over COVID, particularly the most important civil liberties that we've actually lost? Oh, yeah. How long have you got? Mm. About an hour. About an hour. <laughs> yeah. um, so... I think around March 2020, we all got, the, it, things changed rapidly, very, very quickly. Um, even though I think the machinations of government had been um, uh, preparing for some of the legislative changes for a bit longer than the public knew. Um, and so when the coronavirus bill was published, um, it was published about three days before it being passed, um, 360 pages. Um, that is where my sleepless nights <laughs> began um, because no one was really scrutinising it, certainly not the opposition very much. Um, and in there, uh, it's now an act. Um, it's still in force uh, well over a year later. In there, you have the power to detain potentially infectious people, which can be, in a pandemic, anyone. There's no kind of clear threshold. There's no detention time limit. There's no clear place you would keep these people, quarantine centres or anything, no clear access to legal advice. Just the kind of legal constructions you don't normally see in a, in a democracy or even in a, an emergency. Uh, the power to suspend the right to protest, the power to cancel gatherings, cancel elections, uh, a reduction of thresholds around uh, mental health detention. I mean, just a really, really broad range of sweeping powers, massive state enlargement with very little scrutiny. And that was supposed to last for two years. Um, At that point, of course, now we know people haven't been 
shipped off into quarantine centres for unknown amounts of time. They could be under the current law that Mm. we have, which is worrying enough in itself. And protests have basically been banned. Um, But to have those kinds of powers at the fingertips of government so readily, so easily, uh, cancelling elections even, you know, this is, it's, it's really, really serious stuff. It puts us in a very perilous position where all you need is really, uh, you know, a change of breeze and suddenly we're living in a very, very different society. And, and, and let's remember as well, I mean, the whole idea of us being in this emergency, yes, it's very terrible. I mean, we are in quite a mature democracy where we have the Civil Contingencies Act, for example. I mean, there are structures and laws in place that are designed for emergency situations why the government didn't use the Civil Contingencies Act, I don't know. There's never been a clear answer to that. It would mean that Parliament would be scrutinising what the government is doing very regularly. Instead, what they did with the Coronavirus Act is basically hand over the keys to the country, uh, abdicate scrutiny to the government um, in in perhaps most the enabling kind of way. That's where it started. I mean, obviously, since then, we've had literally hundreds of statutory instruments. So small pieces of legislation that go under the radar in Parliament that have changed the way that we live, that have criminalised pretty much every aspect of everyday life um, at different points. Um, but that, that that's where it started. And by the way, I just want to be clear, I'm not saying at all in a pandemic that you want the government to sit back and do nothing, that they shouldn't be legislating, that we might not need to have extraordinary measures. But um, I don't think we need... I don't think we needed kind of blank check authoritarian measures. And that is completely what we've seen over the last uh, 18 months and a breakdown of the rule of law. Do you think the the public are less concerned about it than perhaps they ought to be because we've been so terrified about COVID that a lot of people feel like, well, any measure to, to help with that is necessary? Uh, we we certainly see people, you know, people were talking about how anyone who goes abroad and then brings back COVID should be you know, sent to jail for 10 years mm. or something. Oh, yeah. uh, like people seem oh, no, to... just fibbing on the form, you right. can go to jail for 10 years. Right, yeah. right. Wow. So, so uh, I guess what I'm getting at is we can complain that it hasn't been properly democratically scrutinized. And I think that's a very important point, which I want to come to a bit later. But on the broad side of it, I think, is it fair to say the public generally haven't really been that concerned about this? It's a good question. I think that the public, my sense is that the public is quite divided. I think particularly people who have been living in fairly comfortable situations making sourdough for the last year are not that concerned. They might be used to working from home. They might not be economically hit as much as everyone else. They might not be the kinds of people that are targeted by the police when they go out. Um, But I think that there are probably millions of people who are actually completely alarmed and freaked out by what's happened over the last year and who don't have a voice and haven't been given a voice because the media has been doing the government's work for it. And you might, again, you might say there are very good reasons for that, but there hasn't been any balance. And even on like really simple matters like how democracy and politics work, um, you know, I've been watching incredulously political correspondents fail to even acknowledge basic 
massive changes in the way that Parliament works or total lack of, of scrutiny, total lack of opposition. Um, the way that timing of introducing some of this legislation has been so completely cynical to um, basically disempower Parliament. Now, compare that to what happens when the same, uh, broadly the same government, tried to disempower Parliament over Brexit. It was top of the news. Mm. It was the biggest news story. Everyone became aware of the importance of 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 Parliament, a parliamentary procedure, the power of MPs. We have a parliamentary democracy. You know, we don't have a completely executive dominated democracy. And that was a completely different type of 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 coverage. Um, and Brexit, too, was important because it was, uh, you know, it, it was the will of the, the people. Uh, the pandemic is important. But for goodness sake, have some have some balance. And I think part it doesn't also doesn't help people who are losing trust in the establishment uh, and in institutions because they feel deliberately silenced or and not represented, whether that's on the media or actually whether it's online as well, where um, you, you I mean, I could go on forever about this, but, but how, how, you know, the, the severely uh, shrinking space for the sorts of things you can say about the current situation mm. on Facebook, for example. Oh, Twitter. we'll get into that. Don't worry yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that. But didn't you find it surprising? You know, the, the whole point of an opposition is to challenge the government. If anything, they were even more authoritarian. Yeah, even more authoritarian. And also, um, I, I think the, the general... Keir Starmer's general approach seems to be you won't be able to put a paper wedge between me and the government mm. and a kind of like sit back, let's see if they fail, maybe then I'll pick up some votes. That seems to be the kind of strategy um, to me. I just want to be clear, by the way, Big Brother Watch is a non-partisan organisation. I'm actually personally a non-partisan person as well. And part of the reason for that, and I think part of the reason that a lot of people are disillusioned with politics, is we're back in the realms of a kind of... Um, you can't a, a kind of bipartisan consensus. I mean, there there's a growing consensus between the two main parties. This is what we had kind of for a lot of the Blair years mm-hmm. as well. Mm. Um, and then just this whirlpool of authoritarianism at the centre of it, where citizens are losing out. And I think I think it's a really bad strategy uh, uh, um, for for any political party. Um, it's deeply deeply unfair to the people that they claim to represent. And it's bad for British democracy. It actively harms democracy. Um, and it has been left to rights groups and NGOs like us to do the hard scrutiny work. And you're basically delivering scrutiny work to MPs and saying, please look at this. Just, you know, don't have to do the work yourself. Just have a look at what's actually going on. Speak up for the people who care about this. I mean, for example, under the, uh, under the uh, Coronavirus Act, um, the power that I mentioned to uh, detain potentially infectious people, uh, unsurprisingly, has never been used lawfully to detain uh, potentially infectious people. It's been used as another stick to beat people with, and it's been used for 100% unlawful prosecutions. And we know that because we campaigned as soon as it was passed to say the CPS needs to be uh, reviewing every prosecution that's hap- happening under this power because it's so extreme. And they've found that hundreds of people have been unlawfully uh, prosecuted, not a single lawful prosecution. And we have lobbied Parliament to remove those powers for obvious reasons. We've never had a a law that's been used only ever unlawfully to, uh, you know, jail people. And 
it remains in in in, in power now. We, we, it's very hard to motivate the opposition to even say anything about it. Do you think there's been a watershed moment with the murder of Sarah Everard, where suddenly people realise that hang on, you can't even attend, you know, a vigil without the police coming in and literally kneeling on people's necks, particularly women. And there was that very striking image. Do you think the tide has turned? She was kneeling on her back. Uh, yeah. The officer was kneeling on, on, on her back, yeah. Um, I think it 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 sh- obviously shook a lot of people. Mm. And the optics of it were absolutely awful. I was there as well. Mm. Um, it was pretty bad. Yeah, the, the, the atmosphere uh, the, at the vigil was... Uh, you know, the, the way the police were dealing with it was typically uh, kind of brutish, really, for no for no ov- ov- obvious reason. Um, but but actually, people have been treated like that at protests for quite a long time. Mm. And, uh, you know, I might really care about that particular one, but there are other ones. If you defend the right to free speech, you defend, you defend it agnostically for whatever it is that individuals are speaking about. There had been plenty of other protests that had been brutally policed, where people have been um, arrested and now facing prosecutions. The prosecutions are now coming through the courts and no one was willing to speak up for them. Very few people, we did, but very few few people were willing to speak up for them. So actually one of the things that we did was um, look at all of those MPs who came out after the vigil and said, that was terrible policing, we should defend the right to protest and said... Um, Ask them to sign a joint statement saying we think that there should be an exemption for the right to protest in the lockdown regulations, mm. which many of them hadn't said before. We'd been saying this is really important. You can't ever criminalise uh, protest. Um, and then we released it uh, on a weekend when there was a massive anti-lockdown protest, uh, which I don't know that all of the MPs have maybe clocked. I'm not saying it was like a deliberate thing, mm. um, but I think it was really important that, you know, if you're defending the right to protest, you defend it for everyone. Um, and, and and also you defend it because you have to bear in mind that, uh, as in that case, you never know what's around the corner. So you never know if there's going to be a sudden change of circumstance or an event or some kind of outpouring where people want to express themselves mm. are you really going to criminalize those people you're going to give them a criminal record where it's going to ruin their career or limit their life opportunities just because they wanted to hold, hold a placard and say something they cared about um, but that is literally the, it, the those protest restrictions remain in place today and I'm, I'm aware there's big protests this weekend and I'm sure more people will be arrested and prosecuted, unfortunately. Well, you talk about uh, we don't know what will happen in the future and how rules and regulations and laws are going to be used. And I think that's such an important point because we are also not party political. I mean, we think they're all bloody useless at the moment. Uh, but At the moment? Well, yeah, for, for a very long time now, <laughs> but particularly at the moment. But nonetheless, I think a lot of people might be willing to kind of allow the current sort of you know, people would, I think, see it as a sort of softer version of what a conservative government could be, potentially. So Boris Johnson isn't someone people think is going to, you know, start the Fourth Reich in the UK. But but you are putting things in place where there's no democratic accountability. Things aren't being checked. Things aren't being vetted. Extraordinary powers are being given. They're being misused, as you say. Uh, no legal use of a law would seem to me that to, to suggest that it's a it's bad a law, yeah. right? Mm. Uh, but do you think that people are just not thinking ahead in terms of what the consequences of this will be down the line? 
Well, I think, I guess um, part of the luxury of living in a, a relatively stable democracy is that people get complacent. Mm. But not everyone is, again. I mean, I, I do actually think there's been a bit of a sea change. I can only say it from my perspective. I mean, Big Brother Watch, we're still a really small organisation, but for us, we've had a massive surge of support. The phone never stops. Some people just want to talk. And like, sometimes I find myself spending just a couple of hours on the phone just talking to someone who has actually just suddenly become quite freaked out by the situation that we're in, even if that's a, a journalist or a member of the public or sometimes a member of parliament. I mean there really are members of parliament who are freaked out by what they are seeing from their perspective, uh, some of whom aren't speaking about it completely frankly in the public domain. Um, and so there's this kind of, this is one of the things that really worries me about the current situation that we're in. It's this kind of like, uh, it's, it's kind of a bit North Korean, the mm. way that people are self-censoring. And so even though there might be broad acknowledgement that we're in a very perilous position, things have gone too far, uh, there's been a breakdown of some of the, 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 the basic architecture of what makes us a democracy, mm. um, when people are witnessing, uh, you know, you know, the 90-year-old man that got thrown in the back of a police van for going to a protest, things just start... Uh, triggering people to really, really acknowledge that we've gone perhaps beyond a point of return, but people won't talk about it. And even within social circles, um, a lot of, you know, kind of, um, you know, ordinary liberal social circles, these are difficult things to talk about. Um, even in mine, you know, it's, it's it, a lot, a lot of people don't want to talk about, you, you know, you want to be, you there's this odd kind of sense emerges where you want to be seen as like a, a true believer in the national program and the clapping and everything. I mean, th there's something that's a bit too, um, you know, I like the NHS as much as anyone, but there, there was the, the whole, you know, banging the pots and stuff. Mm. It, it, there is the, um, there's something a bit disturbing about this level of uh, self-censorship. Yeah. I mean, I didn't take part in any of that because I'm a miserable git, but... Uh, <laughs> She just laughed like, yeah, probably. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's no <laughs> dispute. There's no Correct. dispute about that. I just find this so, so worrying. And I, and I, and I, and I really like your opinion on this. Do you think the government are going to give back some of these powers? Because I look at them and I go, mm, will they? They don't like giving up power, any of these fuckers. Yeah, they, they, they will never give back powers. Never. Um. And I, I suppose that's why I see, I don't think we can really understand the context that we're in now without understanding the post 9-11 context. Right. That completely changed everything and to this day has changed everything. And all we've ever seen since then is a ratcheting of powers, uh, which is why it was like, you know, the privilege of my life to work at Liberty because mm. Liberty uh, did so much in the post 9-11 years under Shami to challenge some of those excesses um, of, of, of government um, power. But we do still broadly live under all the counter-terror legislation, um, you know, so, so, so much change, mass surveillance. Um, and so it's going to be the same. I think now we've got a, a emerging concept of bioterrorism, mm. uh, the idea that we perhaps will walk around society with health passes, um, increasing surveillance generally, uh, the idea that we're kind of now on license from the states, that each of us is a potential not only terrorist but biohazard, 
and that there's this whole new raft of state controls that are uh, going to be um, deemed as acceptable or even necessary uh, or, or even that it would be unsafe not to have them. Um, and so how, how do you peel back that? You'd have to peel back the whole narrative. I think we, I mean, obviously it's our mission to try and um, get the government to give some of those powers up, but it won't happen by itself. So yeah, people need to get involved now and take action now and realise their own power and influence now, which everyone does have and I think is underestimated because uh, this is going to be a marathon and uh, it, it, it's almost too late, I think. Hey, Constantine, do you love trigonometry? Of course. Incredible interviews, hilarious live streams, hard-hitting satire, plus my handsome jawline. Whatever takes away from your hairline. But if you do love trigonometry and you want to support us, there's only one place to do that, and that's on Locals. Yes, Locals is a brilliant platform that has been incredibly supportive to our show and other problematic creators. The great thing about Locals is that it's a community for people who love trigonometry. That's right. It's a place for you to hang out with like-minded people, share thoughts, memes, and discuss the show. You can enjoy it for free, but it also gives you the option of supporting us for as little as $7 a month. And if you want to give more, you can. We have incredible rewards for our higher tier supporters as well. We've got everything from mugs, monthly group calls, and one-on-two chats with me and KK. Get in. Join our community by hitting the link in the description and the pinned comment below. See you there, guys. You raised one thing that I really care about very strongly, and uh, and this is the vaccine passport thing. Mm-hmm. And people should be making their own decision about the vaccine. I think if if people are at risk or whatever, they should be definitely taking it. That's my opinion. Uh, for young and healthy people, I think it's a different calculation. But it, it doesn't matter where you are on the vaccine. The vaccine passport thing. If <laughs> I think people need to understand the implications of this. So, but there's also another dimension to this, which is that ministers like Michael Gove and others said to us there were no plans to introduce vaccine passports. And this wasn't true, was it? No. I mean, yeah, uh, this is the the other kind of worrying facet of this is that um, there have been barefaced, not even really effectively concealed lies consistently um, and and a, a kind of choreography through the the uh, building of this growing authoritarianism. Um, and so, yeah, contracts were going out uh, from uh, late last year to build uh, vaccine passports or COVID passports. I mean, the way that they're looking at it now is it will be vaccine or test result or antibodies. Um, so on. while that's going on, yeah. people are going on television and saying we have no plans to do this while handing out millions of pounds in contracts. Not just television, but stating on record in Parliament Mm. that we have no plans. And in fact, Nadine Zahawi said, in fact, we we urge businesses not even to think about it whilst they're setting up focus groups to talk about how how it's going to go down with the public and starting to invest uh, lots of money in in building them. I think there's an element of of, of cock up there, really. I mean, I think, I don't know if Nadim Zahawi actually knew what was going on within his own brief. 
Um, but there was a time in politics where you'd maybe resign after that. But now no one resigns over anything. The it's age just of shame the, is over. Yeah. Completely, mm. completely. Just hide in the fridge. Yeah. 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 <laughs> go away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and now, you know, right up to till where we are now, months later, um, the app, uh, the, the uh, vaccine passport is now a, a feature of the NHS app. Um, and it says on the privacy policy that they envisage using it domestically. This might be useful for uh, access to domestic events. <clears throat> Whilst um, in public and in parliament saying, we're really not sure about whether whether we're going to do this. It was very finely balanced. Uh, you know, we're really looking at the facts. We're doing a consultation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but all the, all the architecture is there. And actually, Michael Gove said this week, um, no matter what deci- decision is made, they're going to build the architecture because they could at some point spring it up. Um, and that was his reflection on what happened in Israel as well, because they had the green pass, um, which is now being rolled back. And there was, you won't hear about it in the press here, but I'm in touch with people there. There was a lot of pushback to it. Um, and he similarly said, um, but it might be reignited at any point. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, and, and that's the idea with test and trace as well. You know, um, it's 30 plus billion pounds of public money on a whole new architecture that can just be used. You know, that that's not a temporary thing. That's not for an immediate, uh, the, the immediate situation. That's a long term plan. And, and, and this is the thing. I mean, it happened after 9-11 as well mm. in that when, you know, there are certain projects that some people in government have always wanted to pursue and uh, then a, an emergency can give you an opportunity to uh, very quickly with less scrutiny and with very few limitations on public spending just start to change everything. Um, and there certainly are all sorts of visions within government about the ways to use technology and uh change the way that we live. Well, what are your concerns with vaccine passports? Because some people might be watching this going, well, look, it's making us safer. We can know who's got COVID, who doesn't. You know, uh, maybe I haven't done a good job of explaining. Like, what's the what's the argument against vaccine passports? What are you concerned about? What should people watching this be like, oh, wow, okay, I hadn't thought of that? Well, we'll talk about COVID passports more generally, yeah. if that's okay, because yeah, yeah. that's where the government wants to wants to at least start. So test, vaccine or antibody status. Mm. There are problems with, with each. I mean, first of all, it's not going to make anyone any safer. People are going people who want to get vaccinated are going to get vaccinated. People who don't want to are not going to. We don't yet have mandatory vaccines in this country, so we will see each other, we will mix. Uh, the whole idea that you can create this theatre around certain events and, and places where it's like a clean zone and you've only got the green ticks are allowed in and somehow <laughs> that's going to change the whole public health situation. It's not. Uh, what it might do is alleviate liability on those businesses and on those events because they can say, we've we've done this. Although one thing that was interesting that Michael Gove said yesterday is they're not going, you know, one of the concerns we were raising is how does that affect staff? If you work, for example, at a, um, a football stadium and you're a steward, does that mean now as part of your work, you are forced to either have a vaccine or have a medical test in order just to go to work? Um, but he said that they're not going to put the obligation on uh, staff, which makes it ev- the theatre even more ridiculous. 
because you're not going to have only green ticks. And the whole idea of that stupid, how do you get to the football stadium? You get there on the coach with everyone else or the bus or the tube where you're packed in with, you know, spreaders or, you know, whatever mm. we now are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think the, the risk is that this, it's an ID system. It's a digital ID system. And, and back when you had the um, ID debate after 9-11, it was treated as kind of a future risk. Like, imagine if you had to have your health records on there. Mm. I've got to imagine if people started asking to see your health status or, you know, had HIV on there or something. These kind of things that come with a lot of stigma and, and uh, control. But that's the starting point for this, is that you have your health records and you show them to people um, and you carry it with you most places you go or, you know, you, you're deemed a different class of citizen. So this is ID cards... And digital ID cards on steroids, population wide, and it will become a tool for discrimination, for division. It will be used as, as, as I'm afraid, yet another stick to beat people with. You know, there, there will be certain people will ask other certain people to see their pass. Um, and, uh, I think that will make us into a, a very, very ugly checkpoint dystopian society. Do you, do you think this, they're going to pass it through? They're going to pass the legislation to enforce this? Do you know what? I think I think there might still be something to play for. And I mm. think um, watching Michael Gove in his evidence session this week, um, he was, he actually always looks quite inflated, but he was quite deflated. I think that's just his face, Silky, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> he was quite deflated in the way that he was presenting it. He didn't seem to really... I, I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I get the sense. I, I mean, it's no secret, I think, that within cabinet, this is a very controversial idea. Mm. Um, and uh, anyone with any political sense knows they're going to get a hammering going for it. I mean, uh, there will be serious, serious kickback, I think. And I think they'd be there making definitely will be. a grave, grave mistake. I mean, I think, as, uh, I think the Conservative Party forgets uh, they are, especially where this kind of electoral shift has happened, they are kind of on license from the working class. Mm. Um, you know, this is not a, uh, they, they, they really shouldn't assume that this is a, a new permanent state of affairs, uh, nor should they assume that the failure of the, of the opposition equates to their success. Mm. And I think um, a lot of it stems from the kind of anti-establishment uh, sentiment around Brexit yep. and the mm. sense of being betrayed and all this kind of thing. I can't think of anything more establishment, more controlling um, than than foisting digital IDs and COVID IDs on a public that has a historic, long-held aversion and scepticism towards the idea. Um, in fact, it was one of the reasons that the Tories got into power in 2010. They promised to scrap ID cards. Um so I think there are people probably who are thinking about the political ramifications of this, also the fact that there's no real point, there's going to be no real benefits, either in public health terms or political terms. Um, and I do get the sense that now that there's some, um, it's like the wind's been taken out of the sails of the idea. And I think that is down to our campaigning and uh, everyone who's speaking out against this in uh, you know rights groups, media, um, the protests. Um, I think that's that's really visible and tangible. And if we continue to do that, it might just be that we won't actually see this come to fruition. Uh, however, if we're not successful in that, then um, 
they're going to introduce them for uh, COVID passports for large event, large ticketed events like sports, music, uh, festivals, uh, all venues of a certain capacity. And he also said he would do that through a statutory instrument. So it's not even primary legislation in the normal sense, which means you can't uh, MPs can't amend it. It's like an all or nothing. My understanding of where the numbers are on there would still be a vote. My understanding of where the numbers are is that they would have a hard time getting that through Parliament. Mm. But it all comes down to Labour, actually. I mean, the numbers are much. Well, that's numbers, reassuring. Isn't it? <laughs> the numbers are much easier to do on the on the Conservative side because I think they don't have the confidence of their own party. The question is, will will Labour oppose them? And certainly the Labour backbenches will, but whether the front bench will uh, remains to be seen. It's just very much on, on the fence at the moment. But I think what Keir did say, which is right, is that it's un- fundamentally un-British. Mm-hmm. Well, we've done quite a lot of things that are fundamentally <laughs> un-British in the last year. I guess the takeaway from this is everyone should write to their MP, I think, about this. Is that... Mm. I think it has a surprisingly more impact than than people think. I mean, often when we're uh, lobbying MPs, they'll say, I just don't have emails in my inbox about this. Mm. Um, All right, well, let's make sure there's some emails in the inboxes <laughs> yeah. about this. Yeah. So, okay, let's move on a little bit. Uh, we've talked about government action. Uh, I actually no longer think government is the most powerful institution that exists in, in the is world. It us? It's me and you, mate. That's, it's just me and you. <laughs> Uh, she's laughing more than any, and more than at any point during the interview. So there we go. Um, I actually think that the biggest powers in the world are the big tech companies uh, at the moment. They control who gets to be president, who of the United States, and what they can influence. That they they've shown their willingness to do that. Um, and uh, in terms of the issue of COVID. We have seen that, for example, uh, the lab leak hypothesis, the idea that the COVID-19 came from a lab in China, initially was dismissed as a conspiracy theory. Anyone who said anything about it would be banned from Twitter, banned from Facebook, the YouTube channel would be deleted, etc. Now that issue is coming back as potentially the truth about what happened. Now, we don't know, mm. but the conversation wasn't able to be had. And it's only thanks to a lot of people bravely going against that, that we, we seem to have that conversation now. We've had a conversation on our show with a, a doctor about some aspects of COVID-19, medical microbiologist, which was taken down by YouTube. Uh, and YouTube was very heavy uh, in its censorship of people who had a view about COVID-19 that was not the, the, the particular view that was supposed to be allowed at that moment in time. And then three months later, suddenly all of that actually turned out about the efficacy of masks, for example, right? So... What is the situation with regards to big tech? Where are we? Like, they just, it seems to me, just deciding what we can and can't talk about now. Yeah, completely. Um, it's such a, an inversion, inversion of um, everything that the internet promised to be. This <laughs> big space for um, people to speak without barriers um, and, you know, speak directly to power. And uh, increasingly it's becoming like a controlled, government-controlled, actually, speech zone. Uh, because even finding a distinction between some of the big tech companies and governments is becoming increasingly hard. And again, this is another uh, extraordinary thing that this government is wading into with uh, a new um, bill, the online safety bill, whereby um, they they have invented a, uh, a, a new a category of content uh, that is harmful. Mm. Anything that's harmful 
needs to be regulated on the internet or taken off the internet, even if it's lawful. And so part of what the um, tech companies are doing is preempting that. Um, they, they can see this regulation coming and they're preempting that. Part of it, I think, is driven by kind of reputational concerns. There's this whole, God only knows why, but there's this whole category of journalism at the moment. It's like, we found a bad thing on the internet. <laughs> um, it's like, what, really? <laughs> All those billions of people, you found a nasty one in there? Like, that, that's become a whole category. And so they're very responsive to that. Mm. Um, and yeah, now we're kind of completely through the looking glass in terms of where the, uh, the, the shape of the restrictions online. Um, I know you have felt the brunt of that a bit. I've actually felt the brunt of that uh, myself. Um, you know, perfectly reasonable, ordinary stuff um, that you can be banned online for, for saying. Um, and I think, especially given the proximity of some of that recently over coronavirus to uh, the PR wishes of the Chinese government, mm. um, is pretty chilling. Um, yeah, I mean, I know Ian Birrell's piece on um, Unheard, which just merely sort of questioned the efficacy of the World Health Organization um, investigation into the origins of COVID, was marked as as false on on Facebook. Um, yeah, and now of course they're 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 rolling back. Well, who'd have thought it? You know, you, you, Facebook is should never be big tech companies should never be the arbiters of free speech. And also that the whole concept of free speech has never, ever been and should never be uh, the accepted consensus of government authorities or intergovernmental authorities. I mean, the whole point of free speech is it allows ordinary citizens to speak their, sorry, um, truth, their opinions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I fucking hate that, my truth. My truth no, is, no uh, such thing. I, I, did, I didn't mean that. I yeah, know you sorry. didn't. I know um, you didn't. But, but to give their views mm. to power. Yeah. 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 Um, and actually now what they're saying is you can say what you like if it, if it agrees with the government's view on things. Um, and I don't even think that that um, it's it's crazy, isn't it? Why, why is this so accepted? I mean, I, 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 it's like a big alarm bell uh, moment. I, I think it should be for all of us that there is this shrinking space to speak freely. And especially given how much we spend our lives online, um, the shrinking space to think freely as well and how it's actually shaping the kinds of conversations we're having when we're offline. Um you say that, and look, I'm going to give the argument that people always say, look, they're private companies, they can do what they want. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. What is your response to that? Well, um, I mean, the, the idea that this isn't a de facto censorship mm. is uh, crazy. I mean, of, of course it is. I mean, they, they are um, hosting the conversations of billions of people. Mm. There are more people on Facebook than the populations of many, many countries around the world. Um, and just with one policy change, they can affect what literally billions of people can say to each other. So this is a very serious type of censorship. Yes, they're private companies, but um, part of what I'm worried about actually with the online safety bill is that because the government is saying, is creating these expectations on them, that they are doing regulation and uh, censorship of lawful content, 
if it's basically undesirable or harm, harmful, um, then, yeah, we're no longer looking at the free will of private companies. We're looking at uh, the total integration, where we heard this before, of the private and public sphere mm. into a system that controls what people can say. I can't think of anything more dangerous, more ludicrous than that. Um, and also it creates a barrier to entry. So even if you are uh, a new uh, company that wants to create a new platform... Parlour. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, then you've got all of these regulatory um, barriers that mean... You know, you would need a, a, a team far bigger. You need, you need an infrastructure of a size uh, that you, you clearly can't have as a fledgling company. So there's a, a total barrier to entry as well as this monopolization. It's it, it's so worrying, isn't it? And it just, I've cheered you up then. Yeah, 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 you have. Well, I'm miserable anyway, and you've just made me more miserable. So thank you very much for that. Sorry. But. <laughs> let's look at sort of what what can people do because it, what we're doing is we're analyzing the problems but what do you think are going to be the solutions moving forward mm. um i mean obviously i think that joining with or supporting organizations like us like big brother watch um is important as mm. part certainly part of it because we're tracking this we see we're scrutinizing what's going on we're lobbying on these bills we are trying to bring more to public attention, certainly to political attention and producing research and, and analysis around this and litigation where necessary as well. So we're currently crowdfunding uh, to bring a challenge to COVID passports if they go ahead. We just won a challenge on uh, mass surveillance post-Snowden. I mean, so we, we, do, we do litigate as well. But I think I think that's I think that's really important kind of finding your crowd yeah. and you know finding like-minded people who are concerned about these things. I think also this is maybe a very hard thing but actually even just talking about these issues uh with people there is definitely uh, and also to your member of parliament of course because um it's often people who are the most kind of disillusioned who realize uh the kind of uh problems with the political system they don't want to engage with it. I completely empathise with that. I understand that. But it's a necessary thing to do, especially in this kind of, uh, you know, dangerous moment that we're in. Um, we have to be ringing alarm bells, you know, where, wherever we can, particularly with people that hold the reins on, on power, or at least who should do. Um, but I think actually even talking about these things is, is really important. I think the kind of um, spiral of silence um, among a lot of, um, you know, otherwise liberal people is a real problem. Mm. It's a massive problem. And I, I don't think, you know, spaces like this, I bet there's a lot of, I bet you've had emails from people that say, I've been looking for something like this. So I'm really glad mm. you had this conversation. I haven't mm. seen it elsewhere mm. or just somewhere you can actually t think and speak freely about some uh, issues that otherwise aren't discussed very much in the media or, um, among the, the chatterati more generally. Yeah, those are some of the emails we get. We get a few <laughs> others as well. Uh, but actually, you bring up the political point, and I know that you are not partisan, and, and we try and stay away from picking sides as much as we can. We just try and operate on basis of principles of what we think is important. And you mentioned that, that there's a silence seemingly, particularly on the sort of liberal side of the spectrum. And I find that very odd. I found it very odd when I, as a comedian, started saying, well, there's a bit of an issue with free speech going on people immediately assumed that I was right wing. 
Yeah. And I don't, I, I have no idea what your politics are. And frankly, I, it doesn't even interest me. We're talking about this issue. To me, this is not a political issue. It's a, it's an issue of like the West for centuries has been trying to get to a point of enlightenment where there's certain things that we all understand are important for a liberal mm-hmm. society. Uh, how has that, that link been made b- between freedom and being like a bigger of some kind? Like, how did that happen? It's a very, very good question, isn't it? Um, I don't know. And it's, um, yeah, I was looking back to, um, you know, the ACLU mm. in, the, in the US and... Uh, They've changed their tune lately, haven't they? Yeah, there's been some big, <laughs> there's been some big changes over there. I mean, obviously a really important organisation. They do loads of really important work. Um, but, you know, they made their reputation through doing some of the hardest free speech work you can imagine. They defended the rights of neo-Nazis to march through a Jewish area of uh, it, 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 in the US and, and to do these neo-Nazi marches. You wouldn't actually be able to do that under UK law. Mm-hmm. So already this is more, you know, this is, um, we look at some under the kind of American model of free speech. Uh, it would be definitely incitement, all, all sorts of offences that could fall under here. But it forced... Um, um, the ACLU um, and many of their advocates who are Jewish mm. to um, put forward a very, very compelling argument about why they thought that that was not only in principle, but in practice, the right thing. And there is a long Jewish tradition of defending the right to free speech and, and human rights and civil liberties generally, obviously, given uh, modern history. And we've come so, so far away from that um they were i think absolutely vindicated in the campaigns that that they did they showed themselves to be truly agnostic truly dedicated to the principles of free speech um it eventually defused the situation um and like you say if you if you believe in kind of post-enlightenment idea of rationality how does rationality work why do we have free speech because we we trust in individuals, in people, in publics, to explore information, deal with it, and that uh, through free and fair access to information, rationality will prevail. Um, the, 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 the Enlightenment idea was not, it was obviously, a, uh, in fact, a, a kickback to the idea that the elites control the information for the mm-hmm. benefit of the public. Mm. We've just gone back about 500 years because we're, we're back at this uh, kind of view that the elites need to control the information for the benefit of the public. And uh, I think there's perhaps a problem with maybe um, elitism in some liberal circles, certainly in rights organisations. I mean, they are generally, you know, middle class, um, you know, organisations. But they simply don't trust ordinary people with information. As you saw a lot of this rhetoric around Brexit, this kind of idea of, um, you know, whatever your views on it, again, but the the, the very dominant... Um, we were on the right side um, of that one. The very, the very dominant idea um, of um, like an, uh, anti-Brexit was that you have these like uh, poor, brutish people who can't properly understand information. They're just duped. Um, and, you, and you actually had a bit of that after the most recent election as well. Uh, you know, these working class people don't really know, you know, you know they're, they're just kind of duped, uh, you know, idiots. Uh, this kind of like... Uh, amorphous group of of dumb people who who make mistakes. Um, 
unsurprisingly, <laughs> you know, that that's not, not going to pay off uh, politically, but also it's just not true. Um, and I think the, 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 the damage that is, I, I think it's a real, I think it's actually a travesty that there is such an abandonment of free speech principles that that kind of philosophical underpinning of free mm. speech and why it matters on the left. It's really sad. And the other kind of practical thing about it um, is that there's just no, uh, part of the reason maybe you see less from rights organisations is there's no, there's no, there's no funding for free speech work anymore. And that's, this is maybe interesting to only people inside my world, but it might help to explain to people uh, why you see less of it. I mean, you have big funding organisations, a lot of groups rely on them um, to, to do their work. And no one's funding free speech stuff. There's a lot of funding for disinformation, misinformation type work. Mm. Do you think that's maybe because to, to, to just offer a little bit of a counter, the internet has opened up a massive can of worms when it comes to mass communication. So 50 years ago, if someone was standing on the street corner banging on about how vaccines are actually microchips and whatever, you know, people, 20 people would walk past, probably all ignore that person and there was no harm done. Nowadays, David Icke says something, people are burning down 5G masks the next day there's a bit more of a consequence to speech when it's done online because of the multiplication factor of it, because you can reach millions of people. And because, let's be honest, the inter internet does incentivize the spreading of misinformation because it, it's, it's exciting. It's like extra spicy food or extra flavorful. Like people want it. They want to hear the, ooh, the secret answer to all that actually was, you know, the lizards or whatever. Mm. Mm. I don't know that the consequences of speech have changed. I mean, people made the same kind of arguments when uh, the printing press was invented. But the printing press um, did allow for mass communication in a way that previously wasn't possible. Yeah. Yeah. So people also had this kind of panic about, mm. you know, um, the proles having access to information. And, yeah, and, you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the lack of control, lack of kind of centralized control over it. I mean, the thing about the internet is that if you truly democratize information, um, you can then, especially if you're in a kind of forum environment, you will have at your disposal lots of different views and interpretations of what you're reading and seeing. Mm. You can do your own research. You can find academic papers. You can find uh, journalism, unheard views, whistleblowers. Yeah, but that isn't how most people consume the information. Most people go on YouTube and go, oh, there's a thing here about how the vaccine is all bullshit. I'll click on that. I'll watch that. And they won't then go to a forum or anywhere else to check out the counterfactuals and the counter arguments. That's kind of the argument that, you know, I do have some sympathy with, which is the internet has created unique challenges around this, this issue. Uh, because people don't just, you know, not everyone is going around seeking out all the different points of view on a particular issue. Uh, you know, you go on a, on a Mumsnet forum about the trans issue. There's only one view being represented there, right? Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying it's the wrong or right view, but it's only one view. And increasingly, everyone is kind of stuck in the echo chamber of their own opinion. And I think that that's maybe where I have some I have some understanding of the issues that the big tech companies are trying to address. Do you do you see what I'm getting at? Uh, 
Uh, no. no. Okay. <laughs> no, no I don't, for why? Um, I agree that echo chambers are a problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's a massive problem. Um, and that people are curating their uh, often increasingly radical worldviews by deciding who they hear from on yeah. heavily curated timelines. And also, you know, for example, even when you go on, on, on Twitter, hardly anyone uses it chronologically anymore. So Twitter is pushing you the things that they think are going to be most attention grabbing. Sometimes even people from your, that you're not following, you know, they're trying to feed you things that are, mm-hmm. are going to uh, maintain your attention because that's where the money is. Um, and the same happens across all the platforms. It's not just there. So I think the echo chamber is a real problem, um, much more than the availability of to speak freely mm-hmm. and to access information freely, which let's not forget is a fundamental right and for very good reasons. And I think the reason that those echo chambers are not the subject of scrutiny is because that's the business model and that's where the money is. Right. If there was a proposal that said, I'd be really interested, if we just were to try this thing, first of all, for a year, uh, ban micro-targeted advertising, ban um, uh, that kind of granular data collection from individuals and see what happens. And I think half of those problems, I think more than half of those problems would just fall away. So what you're really saying is they're pretending to try and fix the problem. The problem is echo chambers, but they are pretending to fix it by restricting what people can say. If they just allowed the echo chambers not to form in the first place, we wouldn't have the issue. I think echo chambers are a problem. I mean, I also wouldn't say that um, it's not It's not to say I mean, free speech comes with problems. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that uh, videos that are deliberate falsehoods, uh, etc., are not problematic. Of course they are. But the belief in free speech is that the best way to deal with them is by having a free and open environment um, and by having forums where people can speak and challenge. If you don't have that, if you don't have debates, and if you push people into... Uh, kind of their like deeper, darker echo chambers where they can't be seen and heard. It's not going to change their point of view. Mm-hmm. It's going to make them feel marginalised and ignored, and it's not going to expose them to the challenges they would otherwise encounter. And moving on, I saw a very, very interesting article about one of the head bods at Microsoft worrying about AI and the fact that we're essentially, if we don't actually challenge the progress that we're making and we let technology run away with itself. We're going to be in a dystopian society very, very quickly and far sooner than we originally thought. To me, that was one of the head guys at Microsoft. What what do you think about that? Elon Musk has been warning of the same thing for a long time as well. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, people who work in the tech sector, some of the, um, you know, it's where you find a lot of preppers as well. You know, people who are... um, worried about the direction of travel and how bad things might get and uh, the kind of tech dystopia that awaits. Most of them are still willing to make some money out of it before they uh, <laughs> decide to, you know, pack a, get a backpack and, and, and move on. Um, but yeah, I mean, already, um, you know, what some of our work has looked at is how that's creeping into, uh, how that's affecting citizens here, um, early uses of AI. So you see AI in the criminal justice system already, uh, there was a system used by Durham Police where um, when someone was suspected of an offence, they could be put through this um, uh, AI tool that would assess how likely they were to re-offend. This is before they've even been prosecuted, by the way. 
Um, and if so it, we don't even know if they've offended yet. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. From a criminal justice point of view. Yeah. And there was this, well, this data fed in about the individual, Fucking judge whether they're going to reoffend, and then judge, um, are you going to prosecute them or put them through to a rehabilitation program? And uh, we were then looking at the types of data that were being fed into that, and 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 that's often where the problem. I mean, there are obvious problems, risks with AI. But I mean, I think you have to start from the point of what's the AI built on? Often it's masses of personal data um, that kind of feeds the beast. And um, so they were using um, postcode data. So, you know, this postcode would say something about you. Um, and also a what's called a, a geodemographic a segmentation tool. They're very popular in government now. It's basically every single person in this country has a profile given to them by this tool. Uh, that's more or less built on your postcode um, and millions of pieces of data that ranges from GCSE results, electricity usage, uh, ratio of gardens to buildings, mm. uh, to kind of get a sense of like what kind of class and category of person. about 60 odd different uh, codes that you can be. And so this stuff was fed in to judge someone's life outcome, basically. Um, oh, a, f- a film about something like that. <laughs> some, some, there's yeah. minority report something. Yeah. yeah, there's so many things like that now. Um, in the criminal justice system in particular, we've got facial recognition now that the police want to use, facial recognition cameras. Um, yeah, that we in local councils as well. One of the things we've been analysing um, recently, we've got a report coming up, is about the use of uh, automation, automated decision making, and big data in the welfare system. Uh, once you apply, what kind of profiling and processing are they now doing there? Great stuff. <laughs> I yeah. mean, exciting. The future is bright, Francis. It is bright. It is, and it just seems we're on this relentless march. Whereas before, 15, 20 years ago, you'd go and see something like Minority Report and you'd be like, oh, that's that's an entertaining slice of entertainment, isn't it? Mm. Oh, yeah, I'll just walk into the real world. But more and more, it just seems that technology is going at hyper speed Mm. and it's running away from us. Yeah, it's it's a classic story of power. You know, I think anyone, if you're civil liberties or a rights advocate, you have to scrutinize power and look where the sites of power are and try to um you know make sure there's a healthy balance between mm. um citizens and those sites of power whether it's governments or uh, technology companies and so on um but i think one one of the things that is obviously uh, um you know not great about my line of work is that often because of the situation, when, when you acknowledge it, and I think this is why so many people are in denial or cognitive dissonance about the current situation that we're in, when you when you really take stock of it and acknowledge it, it's quite daunting and the overwhelming sense is fear. And fear is just a very you know, low vibration thing mm. to, uh, you know, to, to dwell on. So... Uh, you know it, that that's a problem, and I think we have to get beyond that. I think I think what's perhaps exciting about the moment that we're in, as much as it is extremely challenging, is that whenever you see a force or an action, there's a reaction. Um, and I do think you know people talk about the tech clash. There's some of that. I think that there will be uh, probably delayed, but there will be a response to. Um, you know, the harder and faster the pace of authoritarianism that we're experiencing right now, 
we will see the same uh, kind of reaction to that and how that's going to play out politically, etc., is something to watch. But I do think wherever there's a vacuum, um, that vacuum, a political vacuum, that will be filled. Um, and like we can see over the last 10 years with some of the anti-establishment kind of political movements, um, you know, we have to make sure those vacuums are filled in the right way. But I think that they will be. And that's why I think anyone who is uh, motivated by this moment, uh, what we're currently going through as a country and, and more broadly, who is motivated to uh, ha- build, you know, actually have a say about the future, especially mm. if you're a parent, you know, mm. a lot of people are worried about the kind of world that their kids are going to grow up in, will do something about it. Um, you know, the, the future is absolutely ours for the taking and, and, we, um, and we just have to claim it. And I, I think that will be an interesting thing to, to be part of and watch over the next few years. Well, it's a lovely note to end the interview on. Uh, we always finish uh, with our final question, which is what is the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? Um, well, since we had this week our, our um, legal win in the uh, legal challenge against, uh, we had a, a legal challenge against mass interception mm. after Snowden blew the whistle in 2013. So we've just done eight years of uh, of a legal challenge. Um, I think we it's important for everyone to know if they don't already, if, it, if the last decade didn't get it through, uh, that even in the UK we are now living in an environment of mass electronic surveillance um, and our own government spy on us. What does that mean practically when you say mass electronic surveillance? Is your phone listening to you right now? Um, The government collects and can collect and access uh, calls, video calls, texts, messages. They can hack devices. They can hack entire nations' uh, devices uh, if they want to. We We have the most totalitarian surveillance legislation of any democracy in the world in the UK and some of the most uh, advanced capabilities we've seen over the last few decades um, how you've had environmental activists, uh, race equality campaigners, um, environmentalists being spied on um, by by their own government and and sometimes with with very negative uh, impacts. Um, That is a big chunk of the battle that we have to fight uh, and I would like to see a bit more uh, that to kind of register on the political mm. spectrum a bit more um, but meanwhile I would say to everyone use Signal and we've gone back into being depressed again. <laughs> well you're back where you belong mate but uh, we're going to do a couple more questions for locals only in a second but uh, uh, Silky uh, thank you so much for coming on the show it's thank been a pleasure you. having you on I have no doubt we will be calling you again very soon probably for... from a prison cell yeah could be. <laughs> yeah, <thanks. laughs> help me we, we could be meeting in prison yeah uh, but um, tell everybody what they can do how they can get involved with Big Brother Watch uh, where they can find you and your work online Thank you. Well, uh, we are bigbrotherwatch.org.uk. We're on Twitter, at Big Brother Watch. Uh, and we have some micro sites now as well. I think one that people might be interested in at the moment is stopvaccinepassports.co.uk. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming and thank you for watching at home. We will see you very soon with another brilliant interview like this one if we're not in prison. Uh, which we probably will be. But anyway, keep following the channel and we'll be streaming uh, live from Belmarsh. See you soon, guys.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.